Welcome to Yell Parks Pod, the number one podcast for yelling about parks. My name is Nick. Um, I use they, them pronouns. Would our other hosts like to introduce themselves? Sure. I'm Bears. I guested on here a long time ago when we were talking about Katmai, and now I'm back, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm Ellery. My uh, pronouns are they, them. Um, it's good to have you back, bears. Yeah, we love bears. Thank you. Today, we are going to talk about the uh, National Park Service LGBTQ Heritage Study. It's a very long, very <laughs> cool report that they wrote back in 2016. But before we get ahead and do that, we just want to acknowledge the ending of Blazeball. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, for those who don't know, it's like a horror baseball simulator game. I don't know, basically, we're just acknowledging it because that's the whole thing that brought us together, yeah, i I think it it feels definitely like a weird fit, given the theme of the podcast, um, but also, so kind of the history of how this got started, um is that Nick and I were invited onto a Blaseball podcast, Infinite Cities uh, Blaseball. Shout out to them. They're very cool. Shout out. And on that episode, we had, so we had been brought on to talk about our team, the Yellowstone Magic. And we had kind of joked like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we just started a podcast where we talked about um, all the national parks? And then we did. And then after the recording, we were like, no, actually, that sounds like a lot of fun, and we should do that. And then in early June, um, the developers announced that the game was over, and it was very sad, I think, for a lot of us to, like, lose that community space, because that it had also been, like, a big part of our life for several years. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I'm very sad about it. Yeah. So. It's it's why we yell about parks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it, it very much has, like, gotten us into uh, more of the, like, outdoorsy nature park stuff. Yeah, we just wanted to um, mention that. Yeah, we'll miss you, baseball. R.I.V. R.I.V. Pour one out. R.I.V. I would always say riv. (laughs) So would I. Riv. Yeah. Anyway, um, back to park stuff. So the LGBTQ America study is part of the National Park Service's Heritage Initiative. So it's part of an ongoing initiative to expand the number of sites dedicated to the legacies of underrepresented people and expand upon interpretations of existing sites. So in 2014, Interior Secretary Sally Jewell announced the LGBTQ Heritage Initiative to explore the legacy of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer individuals in the United States. And this was originally released on National Coming Out Day, October 11th, 2016. 
broadly, it's a, as Bears mentioned, um, a very long uh, report that they've written. It's like 1,200 pages. So it is um, broken down into three main sections. So there are queer themes, which cover the broader LGBTQ community, uh, civil rights, the law, health, uh, arts, and artists, commerce, relationships, sports and leisure, things like that. And then the second section is queer places, um, which is more focusing on specific historical sites. Uh, The study focuses mostly on New York, San Francisco, um, as well as a couple chapters on Chicago, Miami, and Reno. And finally, uh, the last section is Queer Legacies, uh, which talks about um, interpreting LGBTQ history and historic sites and teaching LGBTQ history in uh, classroom settings. Uh, So as, as Nick was mentioning earlier, there was a pressing need to try and understand American historical queer sites in 2016 or prior to 2016 there weren't any national monuments uh dedicated to lgbtq americans and there was only one lgbtq uh, historical site that being the stonewall inn and i want to say in the introduction something like 0.03 percent of the thousands of oh i have I have the numbers. I wrote it down. So there are 90,000 sites listed on the National Register of Historic Places in the U.S. Um, Of those 90,000, 0.005%, and this is current to 2016, uh, are related to the LGBTQ community in some way. So it is a very tiny fraction. Minuscule. But yeah, so during Pride Month in 2016, President Obama designated the Stonewall National Monument as the country's first LGBTQ national monument. And so today there are 10 LGBTQ sites designated as a National Historic Landmark or listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, And those 10 places are the Henry Gerber House in Chicago, Illinois, which was designated June 19th, 2015. The Furies Collective House in Washington, D.C., May 2nd, 2016. Can somebody other than me say the next one? (laughs) The Edificio Comunidad de Orgullo Gay de Puerto Rico, um, commonly known as Casa Orgullo or Pride House in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, that was dedicated May 1st, 2016. There's Julius's Bar in New York City, April 20th, 2016, as well as the Bayard Rustin Residence in New York, New York. I said New York City on the last one. <laughs> Switching it up. March 8th, 2016. 
Uh, the Cherry Grove Community House and Theater in Cherry Grove, New York, June 4th, 2014, as well as the Carrington House in Fire Island Pines, New York, January 8th, 2014. As well as the... So, wait, did you do James Merrill House? No, that's the next one. <laughs> <laughs> James Merrill House in Stonington, Connecticut, August 28th, 2013, as well as the Dr. Franklin E. Kemeny Residence in Washington, D.C., November 2nd, 2011. And, of course, Stonewall National Monument in New York City. Uh, we've got two dates here, I want to I... say... I think the um, the 2016 date is the like official official. Okay, June 24th, 2016, and we said uh, today there are 10 asterisk as of the report, which was published in 2016. There were 10. I do not believe we had the time to do the sufficient research to no su- supplementary research. I am hopeful that there are more. Um, again, there are 90,000 um, plus uh, sites registered, and I don't think any of us uh, had the time to go through and try to find uh, any more that have come after that. Yes. Sorry. I was trying to Google it quick, and I am not fast enough to Google that because I wanted <laughs> to know. <laughs> um, but so, yeah. So basically, Something when I found out about this whole report, um, I wanted to know why is the National Park Service doing this? Because a lot of the time when you think about National Park Service, you're thinking about like specifically, you know, national parks with like lots of nature and like trees or deserts or mountains um, and not so much for example, bars where, like, historic queer events happened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the reason the National Park Service um, is doing this is because they have their whole initiative, our heritage initiative. So, specifically from the National Park Service, they write, The National Park Service is America's storyteller. NPS explores the stories related to the legacies of all Americans, ranging from the Paleo-Indians who first settled North America 12,000 years ago, leading up to the nation's present tapestry of complex cultures. Our history is diverse, and the NPS is dedicated to telling the most inclusive story about the American experience. Central to that narrative is the history of civil rights. As a lead-up to its centennial year, during and following... NPS has been, is, and will continue to work hard to tell the stories about the struggle for freedom, justice, and equality for our country's most underrepresented populations, including women, African Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, American Indians, and Native Alaskans and Hawaiians. So that's why the National Park Service does this. They have a lot of different roles. Mm-hmm. I'd like to shout out a uh, line from the study that I think goes hard. It is mm-hmm. preservation and landmarking of queer historic sites underpin projects to improve self-esteem and self-confidence among queer youth. If knowing about a historic queer site keeps one queer youth alive, landmarking and preservation is a victory. Yeah. Yeah, that line goes hard as hell. 
Sorry, I know we're not supposed to swear. But no, <laughs> it's okay. It's a we'll, good we'll line. A, a goose honk over that. Uh, yeah, there's some really good quotes from this, and I think that that's really like what, like of of all of kind of the themes that happen, I think that that is really the most important one. Is that like we're not just doing it to do it; we're doing it because like. It literally keeps people alive. Yeah, no. It matters, especially when, you know, current political events would like to see (laughs) people like us completely disappear. So, we have these national monuments and historic sites that are dedicated to our history and will keep it alive no matter what. So, yeah. Um, do we want to kind of hop in and start talking about the, um, intro section? Sure, yeah. So I think the standout part of the intro section for me was reconciling our current understandings of queerness, LGBTQ Americans, with how we have to understand historical peoples. Uh, lesbian, I believe, was 1916, 1905, that it, it was first like used as a word. So it is interesting to consider how going back in history also changes the language that we use to understand these people and how they understand themselves yeah because i i mean a lot of the language that we have today is from the 20th century and i i think that it's really interesting to see that discussion of like how do we talk about people who didn't have the same words as us um and also very often where they aren't explicitly referring to themselves um, as being in same-sex relationships or being, like, gender non-conforming. And I think there was a really good quote um, from one of the, like, later chapters. Oh, here it is. Um, Whatever chapter was on page 247. Um. But it, so it reads, uh, this hearsay evidence, inadmissible in court, unacceptable to some historians, is essential to the recuperation of queer histories. The age-old squelching of our words and desires can be replicated when we adhere to ill-suited and unbending standards of historical methodology. Um, and so I think that it, especially for this study... Um, and, like, earlier historical studies of queer people, sometimes you do have to rely on rumors or people just, you know, not necessarily saying, like, yes, I am queer, but also not denying it and kind of reading between the lines because it, it is a very long and often complicated history to recover. There's the subreddit, I believe it's Sappho and her friends. <laughs> yeah, I love that one so much. 
which uh so sappho greek lesbian yes poetry? uh she she was a greek poet um who lived on the isle of lesbos in greece that is where we get the terms both sapphic and lesbian it's all named after her it's all sappho all the it's way all down sappho. it is yeah. also why um i believe violets are a um important signifier for lesbians and uh, the queer community in general i literally just got a violet pin to put on my jacket last weekend <laughs> incredible and so this is a sort of um the subreddit is full of examples of women expressing deep deep love admiration for other women and the joke is they're just good friends <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> or yes roommates unfortunately what we have to process this all through is the lens of well were they just friends yeah. i i think it also there is a tendency um less so now um but certainly for much of history to just kind of ignore anything that said like oh well this person might have been involved in a same-sex relationship of some sort especially when it comes to talking about women um because for a, a lot of european history people didn't believe that women had sex or enjoyed sex and so it's like it was something that i was like well it's okay because they're not in a romantic relationship they're just very close friends yes many of the historic places i believe the henry gerber house definitely the franklin e kameny residence were places where so stonewall is historic because of the event that took place there Mm -hmm. These these places are famous or notable, historic, because of the people that live there. And these are people that we have reason to believe, or they outright stated, that they have some sort of queer relationship, or their roommate was the same gender and they coincidentally never got married <laughs> yeah there's like a weird line of trying to walk between not wanting to take away people of the past agency and like mm -hmm. ascribe these words that they themselves would not use but at the same time trying to find our history and like trying to read between the lines and like recognize ourselves and our elders um yeah so, it's complicated, but also good. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think, um, um, oh, sorry, I forgot what I was gonna say. You are good. It is not even nine a.m. right now. <laughs> I would not even be in the office yet. Do we have more on the intro? I can jump into, um, the sections of history that I focused on, which are uh, transgender people in America. Oh, um, there, 
was one other... I think the other thing that I wanted to talk about, just in terms of those first three introductory chapters, um, one of them just is Pat Robinson died this week. Smiley smiley face. face. Um, I think because because Pat Robinson um, was mentioned in the study. Something that also jumped out to me was the connection between place and identity and how so much of the the way that we understand ourselves is related to physical spaces. And can you give like an example of that? So there was um, from, I believe this is from chapter two. Um, that says, uh, so they're talking about, um, putting some of these historical sites on the map uh, or on a map. Um, so plotting these places on a map, it quickly becomes clear that the map was a powerful yet intuitive tool demonstrating both the broad geographic breadth of LGBTQ history in the United States, uh, a history not confined to the gay meccas of New York City and San Francisco, and the gaps where additional research and community outreach was needed. And I think that it's one of those things where it's like, when you can go to a physical place, it serves as a site um, of community building for the people who are around, you know, when that place rose to historical prominence, right? Um, Like the Stonewall Inn. Um, It was a place for the community to congregate and to form. But even for people like now, you know, 50 years later, it's a place to kind of remember that history and show that, you know, you're not the only one, right? That um, there were other queer people before you and there will probably be more in the future. And so I think it's something that, you know, for me, made me think a lot about um, how we build communities and how we remember those communities. Yes, for sure. It's the same, so much of our cultural idea of a landmark is something important happened here. Mm-hmm. And s- until recently, that has only been through the lens of something important happened to a white man here. Yeah. Yeah. And so we are opening the door for queer and, again, um, African American, uh, all of the underrepresented groups that the NPS shouted out, we are opening the door for their history to be recognized too, so that they know, and we know, we've been here. We've been doing stuff. Yeah. I think it also kind of serves as a reminder that, like, um, especially, like, knowing everything that is happening today with, um anti-trans legislation um it's very easy to get caught up in like how much everything sucks right now 
but having these historical sites can also be a good reminder that like there are people working to change that um and it doesn't always have to be this way one thing i wanted to mention is again i believe this is from chapter two is this Mm -hmm. project started with a google map basically of historic queer sites and one of the things that I wanted to share with you all, the audience, is this project, Queering the Map. I believe it's from 2019, and it is the sort of logical extreme of that same idea. Queering the Map is a map of the Earth, and it's got thousands thousands and thousands of pins on it Mm -hmm. submitted by queer people ranging from i kissed a boy for the first time at this park to um you know here's where we here's where i was when i found out that gay marriage was legalized and it imbibes I feel this same sense of community, of place, that there is queerness all around us, even in rural places where we have such a urban bent to our understanding of queerness. And I think that as the NPS saw, and how this site reiterates is that no we're we're everywhere yeah that that's something i i have a lot to say on um which i did read their reno chapter and i think that that's a good gateway into that my my apologies if meow starts um, yelling no okay. no never apologize for meow we love the baby He's the best boy. Yeah. Um, so do we want to jump into that um, chapter that you read, Bears? Sure. So, yes, I focused on the chapter for transgender. I focused on transgender history and uh, the places that matter. I am a transgender woman. One could understand why I wanted to learn more about my people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the most succinct way to talk about this chapter is actually mentioned up top in the chapter itself. The chapter mentions a series of mini-documentaries titled We've Been Around. And that is, I think what the takeaway is of not just this chapter but the whole study Mm -hmm. you know the chapter ranges from pre-colonial america where a lot of queer history can be difficult to find record of and that's not an accident yeah well and also when we do have a record it's generally from 
the perspective of the colonizers visiting those spaces, even in like early colonial history, very little of it is from the indigenous people. Yes. So what we find actually is that the records that we do have of colonizers entering the modern Americas is their interaction with indigenous peoples that didn't conform to European gender standards. Uh, today we, we would often call this two-spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of the beginning of sort of the pressure of European ideals of gender onto this physical place. Mm-hmm. That being said, even among the colonial and pre-colonial Americans, there was still queerness. Like, just because there was this dominant white man idea of gender doesn't mean that was actually a monolith. We have Mm -hmm. historical record, largely in the legal sense, of people who would, you know, quote-unquote, cross-dress for whatever reason. Maybe that's uh, because of the advantages of being a man, or maybe it's queer identity. We're not sure. We can't know. There's. I'm trying to remember what chapter it was in. I think it's either four or seven, where... um, it they tell the story of um two different people who were both <clears throat> excuse me born and in their early life presented as female and then spent time living as men and like fought in the civil war um and would at various times throughout their life adopt either a male or a female identity um and they that was one of the things they talked about was like we're not sure whether they would have identified as transgender um or gender non-conforming or really anything at all but um it does show that this was not like an uncommon practice yes i actually have the names in front of me oh great albert Cashier, cash, cashier, was assigned female at birth, and he was one of these, you know, wartime patriots where he dressed as a man and went and fought in the Civil War. Don't worry, it was for the Union. Yeah, oh, thank God. <laughs> And after that, he still presented as a man. Versus Deborah Sampson, who 
used her dead brother's identity to fight and afterwards resumed life as a woman. One thing I do want to mention about the uh, colonial and, and pre-colonial times is the public universal friend. Yes. A fascinating figure who, after a religious experience, spiritual experience, identified as a gender and started a spiritual community of, um, I guess, like-minded individuals. Mm -hmm. And I choose to believe that this is one of the first examples of a trans person having a noun as their name. <laughs> <laughs> Rich uh, history. Yeah. It, I really feel like I missed the boat on, like... Picking a noun as a name. It's but never it's, too late. It's never too late. Um, but I, it's also, like, it's so good. I, so good. There's, I, I guess I can get into it more when I talk about the intersectionality chapter, but I love when... Because I feel like a lot of queer people look at that where they're like oh your name is socks that's cringe i love cringe cringe so is much. dead cringe does not exist i um, firmly believe that <laughs> let people be cringe it's okay um also who cares just be happy yeah but yeah i i love when people do that like genuinely i do love when people do that hard agree Yes, so uh, it's outside the scope of this study, but definitely look into the public universal friend if a 17-1800s agender preacher is uh, interesting to you. How that actually, what leads on from that actually is we, ha we see the, the friend, the public universal friend, go to the outskirts of what is colonized at this point. And that is actually a trend that we see moving forward as America expands imperialism. What we find actually is that there exists a, a tremendous amount of this, this, this queer record or or you know the belief of of queerness on these sort of westward fringes as people recognized these feelings in themselves and for one reason or another wanted to be somewhere where they would mostly be left alone it's claimed that or um one of the the novelties from the california gold ru rush was a daguerreotype of a of a woman who was a gold miner and it perpetuated this 
not norm, but this idea that as we branch out from your your New Yorks and Connecticut's, that people are themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, I don't know, maybe this is a bad comparison. We didn't totally cut it if it is. <laughs> I mean, I feel like even if you look at like, you know, beginning of COVID and like COVID when people have more freedom to either not go into work every day or, you know, move out West, like where there's less of that rigidity, Mm -hmm. like people are able to explore their identity a bit more. Um, And I think that's really nice, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was definitely my experience where like I had been out as a lesbian for like eight years when COVID hit and then that massive upheaval gave me time to reflect on other aspects of myself and I was like hey actually maybe I should think about gender mood (laughs) and so like as much as it sucked it, it also was I think a kind of a catalyst for a lot of internal self-reflection right because it's like well I'm dealing with everything else I might as well also deal with this yeah just add it on it's fine why not yeah but yeah no I think that happened to a lot of people myself included so for sure and it uh in some ways ties back into the idea from the first chapter that it's not just the urban centers that had queer people right we've been here and we've been everywhere the whole time the whole time the whole time even if you didn't know it (laughs) sorry we're making it sound like a joke i part of that also i think is just a coping mechanism for like man this sucks uh and so i'm gonna make a joke this is a very um emotional this is a very charged yeah study uh for i'm gonna say most queer people yeah i would um i would imagine yeah i would hope that it is i mean especially in our current time as well so yeah yes and so from that sort of uh, expansionist period we go into the late 19th and early 20th early early 20th centuries mm-hmm. where we begin to define and medicalize and pathologize transness which has positives and negatives mm-hmm gender identity disorder being in the uh, DSM. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Bad. The research the research into hormone replacement that we see in the early 20th century. Fantastic. Good. Great. And around this time as well we we get our first sort of hints of these queer communities 
queer neighborhoods, uh, drag becomes big around this time. There are, you know, plenty of quote-unquote trans hotels, um, and not hotel in the hotel in the sense that they mm-hmm. live there. Mm-hmm. And so as people are now having to settle down they're finding each other right mm-hmm. and forming these communities which going into the 50s 60s and 70s are massively important in the fight for civil rights i forget the name of the man which probably i should look it up <laughs> uh it said that one of the preeminent black leaders in the civil rights movement was a gay man and that all stems from community unfortunately this is also where we start to see this is important because of the riots which is to say that for those who aren't familiar we remember stonewall because it is a place where queer people, transgender people were constantly harassed by the police until they fought back, until the Stonewall riots occurred and began to make changes, make people aware this oppression. And I I also, I appreciated that um, in the study that they mentioned that, like, Stonewall was not the first riot specifically that affected queer people. Like, there were others in kind of the decade before, but that um, Stonewall was, I think, um, more, I'm trying to think of the a, a good word for it, it, it served as more of a catalyst, kind of for whatever reason, to really like, got push um, the the move for queer civil rights forward. But that the name, I think, I, I believe one of them was um, the Compton Cafeteria. Yes. And then there was another one a, a couple years, um, either before or after that. Yeah, I also want to shout out really quick. Um, there's a really good documentary called Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria. Very mm-hmm. good. Highly suggest checking it out. This was a riot similar to Stonewall, but happened a few years before. I did Sorry, I pull just it up. found it. Uh, it was Compton's Cafeteria in 1966 in San Francisco and Black Cat Tavern in Los Angeles in 1967. I also see 1959 Cooper Donut? Donut? Oh, probably Co- Cooper's Donut. Yeah. Was a another sort of inciting mm-hmm. incidents. I did look it up and the man was Bayard Rustin, right, who I believe we said earlier that his place of residence yes his house is a historic site and so we begin to see the queer community cement itself out of the 50s 60s 70s we get networks of 
queer people. There was a there was the transsexual and FTM newsletter for people all across the country to have a community to benefit from the knowledge of others. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, as with all queer history in America, there's a pretty dark spot in in the 80s with the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. We get a little bit of the dispersion of those communities or at least the deep harm of the to those communities. There is however some progress in the 80s so the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore it becomes a sort of leader in sex uh, surgical sex reassignment thus you know we we get these even among all this hardship we are getting these technologies to mm-hmm. affirm the, the trans people of the future. And I believe also out of the 80s, we get the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association. Harry Benjamin being a, a famous trans man. I'm going to look that up. I'm pretty sure that's true. but Sorry, no. Uh, Harry Benjamin, not a trans man. Uh, very important in the science of endocrinology. And quote unquote, he was a sexologist. I and you know, reading this book, I always knew that, or not this book, this um, study. I always knew that sexologist was a word, but it also introduced me to the term sexological, <laughs> which makes sense that sexologists are in like study sexology but it was like that i've never made that connection until i saw it on a piece of paper it's a silly word it's a fun word to say sorry please continue yes so harry benjamin along with uh, alfred kinsey of the kinsey of kinsey scale fame are these people that are sort of pushing back in the medical community about that this is a disorder mm-hmm. and the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association is now known as the World Professional Association for Transgender Health which is the de facto standards of care which which publishes the de facto standards of care for affirming trans people to this to this day Hell yeah. Sorry, heck yeah. (laughs) Um, We also, moving into the 90s, the transgender part of LGBT got a little bit thrown under the bus uh, after the sort of movement in the 60s, 70s, 80s. There's a sort of respectability politics of if gay people want to be accepted then we have to be like 
otherwise conforming to notions of gender masculinity uh we have to to fit in yeah it's heteronormativity so like you know the gay couple next door are exactly the same as you and me with our white picket fence and 2.5 is the number i'm pretty sure 2.5 kids um which some people are and that is fine yeah um but but that should not be a requirement to have respect and I, uh, be recognized as a person or anything it, like that. It, it very much is this like idea of authenticity versus assimilation and yes. respectability politics very much is telling you that like you have to reproduce the models of heterosexuality um, in order to be accepted. But that also essentially is telling you that like the way that you're doing it is wrong but we will tolerate you as long as you pretend to be like us mm-hmm. um well i <laughs> do you have more to say on this because i can also hold <laughs> that longer bit of discussion i merely meant to add that starting in the 90s so transgender civil rights a little bit by the wayside but then starting in the 90s we start to see legal protection Mm -hmm. even if it's just on a city or state level and advocacy becomes very pronounced so as 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 we head into the 90s starting up the fight again yeah we Let's are go. continuing the fight. Yeah. Just like the Master Chief. <laughs> and that's that's more or less the scope of the chapter is pre-colonial uh, gender non-conforming people all the way to, you know, Orange is the New Black and the Wachowskis. Yeah. I think this is maybe a good transition into the um, chapter on intersectionality. And then we can make a a quick return to the respectability conversation. So uh, one of the chapters I read is uh, chapter seven, a note about intersectionality. And this is the um, lead off chapter before... Um, getting into um, some of the various um, chapters that spotlight um, identity, um, including um, Asian American Pacific Islander, um, Native American um, LGBTQ history, uh, the transgender history chapter. Um... For those of you who maybe are not aware of like what the term intersectionality means, um, God, why did I, why did I scroll away? So the idea of intersectionality is recognizing that um, there are many aspects that contribute to our identity, which include but are not li- limited to um, race, ethnicity, gender. Uh, 
religion, generation, geographic location, sexuality, age, ability or disability, uh, and class. And that all of these different things inform um, how you interact with the world, how the world interacts with you, and has been recognized kind of throughout history. Um, It came up in Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech in the 1850s. It was um, part of the Black Chicana and Chicana movement um, in the 60s and 70s, but it was not officially coined as a term until uh, Kimberly Crenshaw published an article on on the term. demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex, a black feminist critique of anti-discrimination doctrine, feminist theory, and anti-racist politics back in the, um, it was 1989, and has come up a lot in conversations around feminist theory, um, LGBTQ history, um, and various other places. But a, a big focus of this chapter, um, or I guess at least the part that kind of stood out to me, is that um, as much queer history as we have recovered, um, it is still very focused on the cis white gay man. And that there are a lot of that right like the the gay community is not homogenous there are lots of different people who fall under that umbrella and that it, it's important to recognize that sometimes we can enact or reproduce these structures of like oppression and violence onto other parts of our community especially um especially trans people, uh, people of color, the right, like the people that you think of as cringe. And a big part of that is respectability politics. Um, so when, for example, we are fighting for the legal right to marry, um, it's important to recognize like, well, who does that benefit? And who does that leave out yeah i mean sorry no i'm i started talking very fast and then my brain did not keep up with the words i was saying (laughs) at all (laughs) um yeah sorry go ahead the transgender history chapter specifically mentions in 2007 openly gay Democratic Congressman Barney Frank cut transgender protections from the Federal Employment Non-Discrimination Act Mm -hmm. in an ultimately futile attempt to enact that legislation. Yeah. And I I think that, like, even today, like, we are seeing... um, I mean, it, it's all kind of part of the queer discourse um, of, like, I mean, I will see it a lot in um, lesbian conversations of, like, 
well, trans women are not real women. And I want to be very clear that anybody who thinks that is a loser um, and you suck and I don't care about your opinions. Um, Fuck turfs. (laughs) Fuck Fuck turfs. turfs. Um, And so I, I think that it's something that we always have to like be aware of that um it is very easy to look at the most polarizing parts of your community and say well we could get the rights that we want if it wasn't for those people but that just means that you are part of the problem um i promise that is not true also it's not true like the people who don't care about the queer community, they don't care about anyone in the queer community. Um, and so cutting off the the most vulnerable aspects of that community isn't actually going to win you anything. Um, it's just going to be you punching down on the people who don't need it, coming from inside their own house. They have never heard the he him lesbian discourse they don't know what it is they don't know what it is and they don't care (laughs) they don't care he him lesbians my beloved yes Uh, (laughs) i'm also just laughing thinking my mother listening to this podcast (laughs) hi mom i know you don't understand a lot of what's happening (laughs) hi next mom we're gonna talk about queer discourse buckle up (laughs) this reminds me actually Mm mm-hmm Something that I really appreciate about this study as a whole is that across its uh, many different authors, each of them has a voice. Um, mm-hmm. I mentioned the Democratic congressman. The article says, quote, landed on the wrong side of history. Yeah. And it is empowering to me at least to read that not in the neutral or or this idea of neutral like scientific voice it is very affirming to say and see this is a federally like published piece of literature and it says this guy was wrong yeah if you in something like this are trying to portray both sides as being completely equal and like there is no wrong answer by doing that you have already made a choice of how you're going to portray it yeah yeah if you give yeah yeah so, yeah, so I think just kind of getting a general overview of this chapter also. Um, uh, so it starts just by um, giving kind of a definition of, like, what is intersectionality, a very uh, brief primer into that, and then um, moving into some of the topic. So one of the first things that they talk about, one of the first things that this author talks about, 
um, is Camp Trans, which was uh, built in the 1990s as a uh, reaction against the exclusion of trans people from the Michigan Women's Music Festival, which, uh, again, uh, queer discourse is... um, (laughs) This is going to be the the queer discourse section, I feel like. The idea of the Michigan Women's Festival um, excluding trans women and being a like quote-unquote women-only space it feels very much how I feel anytime that there is a space it reads to me I guess is a better way to say it it reads to me as like the same way I feel when I see spaces that are like women and non-binary people only and it it's one of those things where it's like okay I immediately don't feel comfortable in this space because I have a sense that you are considering only AFAB non-binary people. Yeah, women and femmes. Um, And when you think about them, you think, oh, this is just women light with different pronouns. Um, And so you don't want trans women there. You don't want AMAB non-binary people there. And it's like, I don't feel comfortable in that space because like I don't think that when you think about non-binary people you are thinking about them as non-binary or gender non-conforming you are just putting them in the woman category and being polite to call them a different word right and just for those who are listening and who may not know um AFAB is assigned female at birth, and AMAB is assigned male at birth. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry. I know we're talking a lot of discourse, <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that that is um, one of those things where it's like um, thinking about who we're excluding and why we're excluding them um, is very important and then there is another very good quote from this chapter that says uh, given the new opportunities available to some gays and lesbians the temptation to forget to forget the outrages and humiliations of gay and lesbian history and to ignore the ongoing suffering of those not borne up by the rising tide of gay normalization is stronger than ever. And I think that that is kind of a recurring thing to remember is that um, it's very easy to look at the progress we've made um, and not think about the people who are getting left behind in that. Um, And then... Uh, moves on to talk about the way that we kind of categorize histories. Um, So um, when we think about feminist uh, history, for example, we have the general narrative is we have first wave feminism in um, the mid 
1800s into the early 20th century. And then second wave feminism in the 60s and 70s. Third wave feminism in the 90s. But that ignores the um, the Black Civil Rights Movement of the 60s. Um, it ignores um, the people who had already been working. And um, very much the kind of queer history tends to get brought up in similar waves. So I, I know early in the introduction, they were talking about um, how they had originally conceived of doing this study as like um, pre-Stonewall and then like kind of the Stonewall era of the 60s, 70s. Um, and then like the um, AIDS crisis and then post-AIDS crisis. But when you look at that history, um, it very much is centered on what was happening in the very white, very urban communities. And while there were many leading figures, right, like Marsha P. Johnson and Sonia Rivera, who were um, who were trans and who were people of color a lot of those categorizations tend to fall on, like, very dividing lines. And then, so yeah, so that is um, one of the conversations that comes up is kind of the way that we or sort of break down our history. I would like to read another quote from chapter one. Yeah. This is, after all, a snapshot of a community's heritage. The test is whether we recognize ourselves in it, and whether others recognize us as well. Yeah. Which, we cannot memorialize Stonewall without remembering Marsha P. Johnson. It is, A, an incomplete recounting of that history but it is exclusionary in in the worst way yeah yeah i think that that quote also i think serves as a good reminder that like it is a snapshot and by nature this cannot be a fully comprehensive report um but to um I think I think that you can also think of it as a like call to action of like reflecting on what histories are told and what histories you want to learn more about. Yeah. I have another quote mm -hmm. here that is actually not from uh not from the report itself, but it is from <laughs> the fact sheet that the National Park Service provides to go along with it. Mm -hmm. Um it reads most LGBTQ narratives are white, middle class, largely male, and urban. To include other communities, NPS asked the authors to look beyond the more well-known stories. Inclusion within each chapter, however, isn't enough to describe the geographic, economic, legal, and other cultural factors that shape these diverse histories. Therefore, we commission chapters providing broad historical context for two-spirit, transgender, Latinx, African-American, and 
Asian American Pacific Islander at oh God. <laughs> Sorry, that was my alarm. Okay. <laughs> I've turned it off. And now you all know that my weekend alarm is 9:45. Wonderful. I love that for you. <laughs> um and bisexual communities. Um <laughs> These chapters read together serve as examples of rich, multifaceted narrative uh, within a fuller history of the United States. So just going back to intersectionality. Yeah, even what is shown in here can never truly... There is such a wide berth of experiences within the queer community. You're never going to be able to hit them all. Um, But the best we can do is try. So, Yeah. Yeah. So the um, the next section in this chapter uh, it talks about is um, working with intersectionality, um, which uh, gives a kind of overview of some of the larger voices um, in the uh, intersectionality uh, or the the field of intersectionality. Um, and some of the philosophy around that, which was fun to read and realize that I recognize a lot of these names, um, from my, (laughs) my, uh, gender studies classes. So it, it then moves on into, um some, like, specific analyses of, uh, intersectionality, um, and, and the one that I focus on, I think, the most, just because it, I guess, seems the most personal to me, um, are, uh, discussions around, like, so the, the first thing that comes up is, um, what is it, what does the word lesbian mean? Because it comes up in so many different contexts and the history, the way that we think about historical lesbians, especially has never been like a stable thing that it is, it is not just about um, romantic relationships, but it can also encapsulate the way we think about gender identity and gender expression because I, I think, I, to me, it seems like there are a lot of historical lesbians where if the word trans man or trans mask had been available, they probably would have identified in that way. And I, I think, and we still see that now in the queer discourse of like, what does it mean to be a lesbian? What does it mean to be bisexual? Um, who gets to use those words? And who do people want to stop using those words? And then this chapter also brings up um, the conversation of respectability politics. And that often um, it is the people who are not fitting into the, like, mainstream culture, which is very white, and it is very, like, upper middle class. And so it's like, well, not everyone in this community 
is those things. But it is it is a, a very worthwhile read. And I it also um I think really helps put the context of the way that um other racial groups understand queerness. So one of the the conversations in talking about this like respectability politics section um, is talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and that it was founded by three queer women of color as a response to violence against African Americans and particularly vulnerable. Um, some of the most vulnerable people in like the whole queer community are Black trans women. And being able to recognize that um, both within the queer community and outside of the queer community is very important. And then it also talks about Latine gender expression and the like machismo tradition of like expectations around uh, gender roles and what that means. And so, um, having these different identities very much uh, impacts um, other aspects of your identity and um, acceptance within other groups. It is literally intersectionality is literally like a Venn diagram. Yeah. um, Yeah, so that is something. So it it gives, uh, this chapter very much just covers a series of vignettes of um, different ways that identity can impact people, even within uh, the same community. I do have more to talk about, but I also realized that we have been going for like two hours and I don't want to, so I want to check in. with how folks are doing. Um, we have to bear in mind that Ola's section will also... Uh, w- was Ola chapter 32 teaching LGBTQ history and heritage? Yeah. I know he wanted to talk about the Marsha P. Johnson park that's in New York. Yeah. I don't mind it being a longer episode. Um, but I also don't want to... Like- people hostage here i'm good i uh i am around i could maybe use like a 10 minute break yeah yeah but why don't we take a break okay i'm back hello hello welcome back bears 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 um okay i'm gonna try and power through the last two chapters that i have to talk about so we're not here for forever so, um, the next chapter that I had was, um, chapter 14, LGBTQ Spaces and Places. Very cute name. It's, it really is. And the idea of this chapter is to, uh, do a, a broad overview of, how geography and place can play an important role in LGBTQ history. And it, it also talks about the idea uh, or um, some of the recent, 
I say recent because um, I was looking at the the chapter and it said 1980s and 90s as if that was not 30 or 40 years ago. Oh boy. <laughs> um, uh, some of the activism around uh, queering spaces. So um, reading spaces that otherwise are not like obviously queer through a um through the lens of queer theory one of the well yeah so so the first section of this paper uh or this chapter is the idea of the space of the body and how bodies can serve as like a a site of um, queer history and that very much um, when we talk about queer spaces there's this dynamic of private versus public space so for a lot of queer history there were very few spaces for queer people um, to occupy private spaces and so a lot of that queer history is very subtly happening in public and also the the gendered boundary between public and private especially for uh, women and transgender people um they were very often associated with the home and indoor gatherings and were kind of like forced into um the private sphere in a way um, and so having these public gatherings could be very radicalizing. And also how, like, being openly queer in uh, in public, especially um, during, like, the McCarthy era, where especially, like, gay men were um, fired from their jobs because often... Um, being an openly gay man was seen as being aligned with communism and the Soviets and all of that, which first of all, hell yeah. <laughs> um, but also like ruined people's lives. And also during the AIDS crisis where there was a strong reaction against gay people because AIDS originally was seen as like the gay man's disease and so being visibly gay um in those periods very much was an act of rebellion the next section which is I think what I want to talk most about can I mm-hmm. can I say in some ways that's still true yeah yeah <laughs> I think of uh, the the controversy surrounding the Bud Light can with the rainbow on it. Oh God, yeah. God, I never thought that I was gonna be pro Bud Light. <laughs> I also never thought that I was gonna be pro Chick Fil A, and then people got upset that they hired a DEI coordinator, and I was like. I saw a tweet that said, you are no longer the Lord's chicken. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm waiting for Hobby Lobby to turn. Ooh, you don't hold your breath on I, that I, one. Well, yeah. 
it is not as it, I think it is important to remember that like we haven't solved all of society's problems in the last 50, 100 years. And so there will always be more work to do. And even something as simple as like wearing a pride pin can go a long way. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Even now, (laughs) visibility is its own, you know, its own rebellion in its way. The next section, which it has come up um, a little bit kind of throughout the recording, um, is city, suburb, and rural, and talks about um, some of the different dynamics. So obviously, cities like New York and San Francisco um, and uh, Chicago, I think, is not quite as like queer coded but still I think to an extent like any major city this is something that the chapter talks about that they are simply places that have very dense populations and in a way inevitably are going to have higher populations of queer people but also are seen as like havens for marginalized communities but there's this kind of complicated relationship um that like if you are leaving like rural areas or even the suburbs that it can often lead to right the idea of um migration within your own country right it part of it is like well what do we do about gentrification and the people who are already living here and how do we handle that and it's a a complicated thing one of the things that they talk about uh, right is the um racial aspect of the move into cities and then the white flight out to the suburbs in the like mid-20th century Um, And then the return to urban centers um, and how that has affected uh, both the queer people of color as well as people of color more generally. Also um, talks about the ways that queer community building in rural areas um, can be very different in... uh, as opposed to larger cities that, um, where is it? That, um, unlike in cities that afford, that afford people visible difference in rural communities, that this idea of kinship and community tends to take priority over, um, private sexual experiences and practices and visibility in working class rural communities. And that also the role of, especially in more modern times, uh, the role of like the internet and social media uh, plays a much bigger part in community building. Especially because like most 
queer people are not born into queer families. And so you are not inherently um, that like heritage and that information. And it is something that can be very isolating. And so being able to find a community is very important in affirming your own identity. Um, and it's something that can be very, um, that can show up in very different ways, depending on, you know, what community type you happen to be living in. This is a digression, mm -hmm. but it's why we feel so strongly about Blaseball yeah. shutting down. Yeah. Blaseball uh, was a deeply queer community, and it is a shame to lose that. Not just for my own vested interest, but all of the new people who come in and learn about themselves or learn about people who are nothing like them. Yeah, I this chapter gave me a lot of baseball thoughts. Um, exactly for that reason, because I I mean, in kind of reflecting on the feelings that I've had around baseball shutting down, the game hadn't I say the game hadn't been running for two years. There was like some very sparse baseball happening. In the two years that it was on hiatus. But like there was a full <laughs> two calendar years between the end of expansion era and things shutting down. And I had kind of come to terms with the fact that like, I don't, the game is nice, but I'm not in the community for the game anymore. I'm in the community for the people. Yeah, I would not be saying good morning basically every morning yeah. for two years if it was only the game that I cared about. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I agree. I think that that has been part of why it is so difficult and, like, why it um, feels so relevant to this discussion is that it, it very much was an online community where it's, like, this is a very explicitly queer space. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why we're trying to get the National Park Service to to fund baseball. <laughs> oh, even better, even better. Um, or you know, build a baseball memorial. Uh, you know, in the middle of it, we'll have joint um, sites in Yellowstone and Arches National Park. Oh god. <laughs> Were there any other like park? It was it was just um Moab and Yellowstone, right? Yeah, I think so. And like vaguely all of Hawaii. Vaguely all of Hawaii. Which has some historical sites but is not like a specific park. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, and I think it's um this section also gave me a lot of thoughts that, like, I should be clear, I have only ever lived in, like, cities and suburbs. Um, I am by no means trying to, like, claim a rural identity. Um, but it also made me think about conversations that are happening now around queer people in the South, um, 
especially, like, Texas and Florida. Yeah. And the way that, like, yeah, I I know I have had some conversations recently with people who are not from the South. (laughs) And hearing the, like, people say, oh, you should just leave. Or, like, oh, Not awful. The South is awful. And, like, painting spaces with a very broad brush. And um, I have a lot of thoughts about it. To me, it's important to recognize that, like, first of all, by saying that, you are buying into the narrative queer people don't belong here. Which is simply not true. Right? We should never be saying that there is a space in the U.S. that... A certain type of people just don't belong. I think anywhere. I'll say, Uh I'm a queer woman. I live in Texas. It is important to remember that the public opinion overwhelmingly is in favor of supporting queer people. It is these limited albeit extremely painful instances of the people in power punching down trying to use us as a stepladder and i think that goes into my second point that like this is a narrative that is being created by institutions that are heavily gerrymandered and um based on, like, generational power structures that are not fully reflective of the public opinion as as a whole. Like, yeah, there are people who don't like queer people, and I'm not saying it's all sunshine and roses, but there are... It's also to remember that, like, the South is an incredibly diverse place, and so when the... it sucks to have people where you live say, hey, we don't want you here. Um, it sucks even more to have the people who are supposed to be on your side talking shit. Yeah. So yeah, I think that it it's, it's very easy to kind of fall into those mindsets. But I think that this chapter is a, a good reminder that like... Geography is not a limiting factor in where people do exist and should be allowed um, to exist and be themselves. While I have not read it myself, I am recommended God Save Texas, A Journey into the Soul of the Lone Star State by Lawrence Wright. Lawrence Wright is a... uh, award-winning journalist and a Texan and the book is about this dichotomy of everyone I know and love is here some of this is hostile some of this is not yeah what do I do about that yeah um it also I have stormy go away um (laughs) Sorry, my stormy is being a menace. I have not had the chance to read this book either, but um, so my background is in um, music academia, 
And there was a really cool uh, talk that I had been able to see a couple years ago. And I know that the author, it was part of a larger project that has now been turned into a book. Um, but it's a queer country by Shauna Golden Pershbacher, which is all about like queer country music is like very, very cool um, kind of history of Stormy, please. <laughs> oh, uh, Stormy. She really wants attention. Can you can you come here? No. Oh. She does not want picked up. Okay. She wants attention, but she doesn't want picked up. But yeah, it it's a very, very cool uh like history of or an exploration of the history of um queer country music. Which is, I, I think, kind of goes into this, like, the South is not a monolith. Um, and that there are many different types of people here. Um, and it, it's helpful to remember that. Yeah, there is no reality where the best choice is to say... Eh, we'll just cut that loose yeah. and let whoever's there figure it out or move or, you know, that's... Yeah. Or, I I mean, the worst is when... I think the, the worst experience to hear is, like, when people say, oh, well, you deserve this because you choose to keep living there. Which, like, it's not always a choice for some people, you know? That, like, moving is a very difficult thing to do especially moving um between states right to like pack up your whole life find a new job find somewhere to live um is a lot of work and it's not always a possibility for people yeah so (laughs) um and that's why remembering queer spaces is important yes um yes we've been here We'll be here. Exactly. We're here. We're queer. Get over it. Yeah. He's uh, actually quoted in one of the chapters that I read that I don't remember which chapter it was. Yes, I, I think. I think one of the the intro chapters. Three. Yeah. Um. So then the next section of this chapter um talks about uh gay neighborhoods. Um, it also has a really interesting discussion of calling places um, queer neighborhoods, gay villages versus queer ghettos and what that means. And in in that discussion also kind of talks about um, gender disparities that come with like homeownership and creating a neighborhood. Historically, women and Trans people have been lower income and continue to have lower incomes than white gay men. And so there are fewer communities, like neighborhoods for those communities. Um, It also talks about uh, the disappearance of lesbian, like specifically lesbian bars, because they tend not to have had the means to be owners outright, that often they are renting these spaces versus bars that are either more broadly um, oriented for gay people or are 
thought of as like men's bars where they are owned outright. Um, and that that can be um, something that is, is or that can be a reason why preserving these places as historical sites um, is so important. It also um, talks a little bit about um, different types of, I believe the final section is like different types of queer spaces. So um, a lot of the queer spaces that are like most well known are bars um, because they were like built specifically for socializing and afforded that sort of semi-private, semi-private public um space to have queer socialization um but that there are um plenty of other spaces like building community centers uh churches often served um especially in the african-american community uh churches would serve as like a vector of queer socialization um, especially with the rise of gospel music, that it was one of those, like, it was kind of a don't ask, don't tell thing, right? Like, you could be queer so long as you had the musical talent to, like, perform gospel music and that you could then go on to build this community within your church and in, like, uh, gospel conventions and things like that. As well as um, the rise of, like, queer bookshops and stuff yeah. like that. There's a, uh, well, it's not as new anymore. There's a new, I'm still going to call it new, queer <laughs> <laughs> tea shop that opened up uh, not too far from me. And they have good tea. And I'm, I want to say what it's called, but I'm not going to because I'm not going to dox myself <laughs> on the podcast. But it's very good. <laughs> That's fair. And then the two. So the so the last um, chapter that I read was um, chapter 28, which is uh, Queerest Little City in the World, LGBTQ Reno, which uh, talks about Reno, uh, the queer history of Reno, Nevada, which is one of these like kind of out in the middle of the desert <laughs> spaces. Um, it is still an urban city but it is um a much smaller city than um like san francisco for example especially in its early history where it was a uh, much sp much smaller so it it talks about like the founding of reno and some of the early queer experiences there something that i found um very enchanting was um very early on, there were virtually no women in the West generally, like during kind of the gold rush era of the mid 1800s. And so in dance halls where you're, when you're living in a city where it's like, there's maybe one woman for every 30 or 40 men living in the town, men would dress as women or they would dance with other men and it led to kind of this normalization of same-sex socialization and um, 
varied gender expression. And it is something that kind of exists throughout the history of Reno, where um, during the times where, like, things were very lax, right? So that early expansion, um, as well as, like, when gambling was legalized, that there was a lot more freedom for people. And then in these kind of in-between periods where people were more concerned with government and structure, that that was also reflected socially um, in more, um, in more like stringency in terms of like, in terms of like biopolitics, I guess is a, a good way to think about it of like state interventions into like what you're allowed to wear or who you're allowed to socialize with. But the bulk of this chapter is um, talking about different spaces. Um, So it it talks about some of the different performance spaces where they would host. Um, So like drag shows have a, a long history in Reno as well as, um, some of the different um, socialization spaces. So um, bars, there was a a very famous bathhouse that were um, specifically catering to the queer community. And one of the things that kind of comes up is that part of why Reno became such a site for the queer community is that it was it was kind of in the path of San Francisco and so there were many people who either like stopped in Reno instead of going to San Francisco or it was able to kind of draw influence from the um, queer community in San Francisco um, and that that really helped build up the queer community Which was really interesting. Like, it makes sense because they're so close geographically. But it it was still very interesting to learn about that connection between the two cities. I think that this ties back in and sort of flies in the face of respectability politics. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of of pearl clutching... (laughs) around the idea of memorializing sex workers or a bar or any of these sort of non-traditional, you know, this is not a statue mm-hmm. of a white guy. Yeah. But it's it's necessary. It's intrinsically connected to yeah. queer history. Yeah. For sure. And I I will say there was one um, part of this chapter that I was like, I don't know, I I guess it seemed questionable to me. Not that I disagree with the significance of the space, but that I feel like the discussion around that, that space felt very incomplete to me. The, the chapter also talks about the University of Nevada, Reno, Gay Queer Student Union, which was, had been holding events 
through or the the university the student I should say the students some of the student associations at the university had been holding queer oriented or queer inclusive events since the 70s um and then in the mid 80s founded the gay student union um and um was talking about how this is a a place for queer socializing and a a way for um a way to like build more visibility and um educate the community and i think that what this chapter leaves out is that while all of that is true university settings are also like very specifically oriented in many ways to young people right like in that 18 to mid 20s um age group which is great um and is wonderful to see and of course there are like faculty and staff members Um, who can participate but I think it's also important to recognize that like it is not always something that is available to the broader community and that was not something that I saw in this chapter that I think is like important to recognize that like those groups are important and they they do a lot but it's not always I think as far-reaching as this article seems to imply that it is yeah I think that's fair to say um, which, like, I, I have not been in, I've never been to Reno, so maybe this particular group does that. But also, I've been in a lot of college towns. I'm going to be honest, anytime I went to organization stuff, I never saw, like, just people from the community. It was always students or, like, staff members. Yeah, that makes sense. It feels like they're not explicitly including yeah. queer elders. Yeah. And then um, the chapter also talks about um, a, oh gosh, a, uh, it's The Ladder, which was a, a lesbian newspaper, or I'm sorry, a lesbian magazine um, that originally was in San Francisco. It was published by the Daughters of Bilitis. And then um, there was a lot of infighting and um, kind of like a fracturing of that group that led to the paper being moved, or led to the magazine um, being moved to Reno. And um, I also learned that there's like a whole gay rodeo scene. Yo. That had been originally part of the Washoe County Fairgrounds, which is the county that Reno is in. And in a move that surprised no one, the government got angry about it. Oh no. I was just thinking that sounds so cool. <laughs> yeah. So in in the 80s, um, th- part of the AIDS crisis led to... Um, the county commissioner uh, lobbying against the inclusion of the Reno Gay Rodeo in the state fair um, and receiving funding from that. And eventually uh, they lost funding 
but um, there is still a whole like international um, gay rodeo association that has kind of been born out of the Reno Gay Rodeo, which is cool and awesome. Um, and I am going to look into more because that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And I'm hoping that maybe they do something near-ish me. But yeah, so it, it was kind of this um, overview of like some of the major sites, um, the city that I think serves as a good model for understanding the history of queer spaces um, in like smaller cities in um, the suburbs and also serves to show that like just because they're not in one of like the big gay places doesn't mean that there's not stuff there. Um, also, go <laughs> start a queer rodeo show in your city if you take away nothing else from this chapter. Um, somebody in Chicago, please do that because I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> they they might have one. They might. I'll, I'll honestly, I will have to look into that. I, I, I honestly, I would be shocked um, if my city didn't. I don't live in Fort Worth, but I do live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and Fort Worth's whole thing is the, like, we're still cowboys. I was like, you gotta have a gay rodeo. You gotta. So we're gonna find out. Oh my god, guys, I just looked it up. The Illinois Gay Rodeo Association. I don't know where that is, but I'm gonna look into it more. It does exist. Incredible. Incredible. Thank you, Illinois. (laughs) Texas Gay Rodeo Association. <laughs> oh, we got them. But, um, sorry, I'm, I'm looking at the Texas Gay Rodeo Association. Um, I think that mostly covers everything. I don't know if people have questions or other things they wanted to talk about. I have uh, one yeah. last thing that I'd uh, like to mention. We're going to dip back into queer discourse a little bit. Let's do it. Yes. I feel, uh, or I I see in queer communities occasionally a a trans mask erasure. And I just want to point out that, you know, whether it's Albert Cashier or um, Louis Sullivan who started the FTM newsletter I mentioned that they're here. (laughs) I see you. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we move on to the outro? Yes. So I know we have quite a few (laughs) different projects um, to plug in our little, like, in uh, in our outro section. So who wants to kick things off? I'll start us off with the National Park Service Heritage Project. That is the whole reason for this study as it exists. It uh, further includes publications on uh, Asian American, Pacific Islander, Hispanic and Latino Americans, African Americans, and other indigenous peoples and LGBTQ histories with... Um, the Hispanic or Latino 
publications available in both English and Spanish. Yeah, I wanted to shout out the, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to shout out the Brave Space Alliance for anyone in Chicago. Um, so Brave Space Alliance is the first Black-led, trans-led, LGBTQ plus center located on the south side of Chicago, and they are dedicated to creating and providing affirming, culturally competent, for us, by us, resources, programming, and services for LGBTQ plus individuals on the south and west sides of the city. Um, they're super rad. They have a bunch of really cool programs. Um, check them out. You can find just Google it. I'm I'm not pulling the website. Just Google it. <laughs> I want to shout out TexasTransKids.org. It's TXTransKids.org. There, at the time of recording, there has been very targeted and harmful legislation around gender-affirming care for uh, trans youths passed in the Texas legislature as part of a wave including florida and, and other mm -hmm. um it, it's happening in in many places but texas is where i live and texas trans kids is resources from the aclu of texas the human rights campaign and the transgender legal defense and education fund among others that are fighting you know, advocating legally, providing resources. They are doing the work to support the rights and lives of these trans youth in, in Texas. And then I wanted to um, shout out the AIDS Outreach Center, um, which you can find at aoc.org. It was founded in 1986 by volunteers to help HIV-positive individuals in Fort Worth deal with end-of-life issues. Um, it continues to provide treatment and services for HIV-positive individuals. They also provide free access to counseling and hormone replacement therapy for trans and gender non-conforming individuals in the area. We also want to give a shout-out to Out History. That's at outhistory.org. They are a massive online archive of queer history. Um, they were founded in 2008 as a place of active community participation in the process of discovering and writing LGBTQ histories. I think our so our next episode should be coming out in July. Um, and I believe we are going to be uh, talking about Hot Springs National Park um, because I'm going to be there uh, sometime this month, yeah. very soon. So we'll get to talk about um, now the second smallest um, park in the national park system. So look forward to that. Very exciting. And uh, while we didn't cover a specific park this episode uh, we want to encourage you to find out more about the original caretakers of the land a lens through which you you might uh, view this is is find out if there are two spirits peoples uh, uh, 
a history of two spirit peoples in, in your local area. Uh, you can find out more by visiting nativeland.ca. That's native-land.ca. And if you want to get in touch, email us at yellparkspod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Tumblr at yellparkspod. And I think that brings us to our final Yahoo. Yahoo! Yahoo. <laughs> Yay! <laughs>